0: psalm 132 this morning (laughs) let's pray because we need to father this morning we are blessed to be a part of your family and as we just sang lord we have been justified not by works of righteousness that we have done but by the perfect work of jesus christ who on the cross bore all of the sins that we have all committed took all of the punishment that was due to mankind from the beginning in the garden to the very end of human history, took all of that upon himself and granted to us in exchange his perfect righteousness in which we stand this morning. And so, Lord, it's with great joy and excitement and anticipation that we have gathered here to worship you for who you are, for what you've done, and what you will yet do as you have promised to each of us. And Lord, we pray now that you would help us grant us ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, and most importantly, a heart that is open to what you want to speak to us today through your word. Lord, we approach your word understanding that it is powerful, that Lord, it will accomplish the purpose to which you have ordained it, and that Lord, it will find a place in each of us in our hearts that are good soil to produce the fruit that you desire. And so, Lord, for those of us here in the sanctuary and those watching online, we pray that you would do your perfect work this morning in each of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 132. If you were a note taker, and I know that many of you are, I would title this study The Pilgrim's Prayer, and you'll see why as we get into it. Now, in most of your Bibles, as you're working your way over to Psalm 132, you will find that just above the beginning of this psalm, what we call the superscript, the, 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 the writers of the psalms here have included the title A Song of Ascents. And it's a title that's given to the Psalms 120 through 134, because each of those 15 Psalms begins with the Hebrew, Shir Hama alaf, which literally means a song of ascent or a song of steps. And the idea is that each of these songs was to be sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they made their way from all over the world and then up to Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem is on a mountain, and anywhere in Israel that you would travel to get there, you've got to go up, you've got to ascend, you've got to climb steps to Jerusalem. And so as they made their way up to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs of ascent. Now, in times past and in, uh, and today, the Jews sing these psalms at each of the Jewish festivals, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, etc., that they celebrate annually. And you'll recall that the last time I taught, though you've slept since then, so maybe you don't, But the last time I taught, I looked at Psalm 131, skipped over 132, and grabbed 133 and 134. And I put those three together because the psalmist in those three psalms is looking at the exhortation to the Jewish pilgrims. And by extension, you and I being ready to worship the Lord. In other words, as they made their way to Jerusalem, they were to prepare their hearts and their minds and their souls to worship the Lord an exhortation to us that when we come to church, we too ought to be ready to worship the Lord. Well, I'm coming back now because I skipped 132. And in it, we find it as a prayer that was prayed and sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they sought God regarding that which was most precious to the pilgrim then, and I would suggest to the Jew today, and that is the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And that's because the practice of the Jewish faith stands or falls with the Jewish temple. In other words, with the temple intact, with a place for the Jewish people to worship, they can worship the Lord as prescribed by the law of Moses. But without a temple, in other words, where there is no temple in Jerusalem, where it's only ruins as it is today, Judaism is an impotent religion because the Jewish person cannot worship God nor make atonement for their sin because all of the law of Moses is associated with the sacrifices that are made daily and weekly and monthly and annually, and it can only be made in the Jewish temple. In other words, without the temple, you cannot do... The things prescribed by the law of Moses. I illustrate with a day of atonement or also called in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, Yom meaning day, Kippur, to atone. Celebrated this last September, 28th or 27th, 28th on our calendar. And without the temple, the Jewish person is forced to do something different than the law of Moses prescribed. You see, under the law of Moses, they were to come to Jerusalem and to afflict their soul with fasting and prayer, to offer sacrifice, and then the high priest, the one day of the year that he was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood, and to make atonement for the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement, they can no longer do that, because there is no temple. And so today, according to rabbinical tradition, they've replaced the animal sacrifice. They've replaced the work of the priest on the day of Yom Kippur with a day of fasting and prayer in which Jewish people all over the world will gather by the rivers, just as they once did when they were in exile in Babylon, and lift their hands to God and pray and ask that God would look only on their good deeds and not on their bad. And then they would take bread and cast it on the water. And even as the water carried the bread away, so they hope in their hearts that God will carry their sins from the past year away. But the Jews leave the river today and every day knowing that their prayers are ineffective because they have no temple. They are not doing what Moses commanded them to do. There is no sacrifice. There is no offering. And so they leave knowing that they are still walking in sin, their sins unatoned for. And so here the pilgrims, both in times of antiquity and today, sing this psalm about the temple, praising David for his desire to build it, verse one to six, the people's prayer to see it, in other words, to see the temple, verses six to 10, and God's promise to build it once again, verse 11 to 18. And they sing that prayer today with even greater passion than they once did, longing for the day when God will fulfill his promise to once again have a temple in Jerusalem. Now the application for all of us before we even get into this is that it is a high priority in the heart of every religious Jew all over the world today to see a new temple built. And see, so when you see in the news today, any hint that there's movement towards a new temple in Jerusalem, It's evidence that we're living in the days that Jesus described as the days immediately preceding his rapture of the church. Now, I wish we could get into that this morning, but I don't have time, so we'll do it tonight. So you need to come back at 6 because we'll be looking at the coming temple and the evidence that, in fact, a temple is in line to be built in Jerusalem once more. Well, back to Psalm 132, look at verses 1 to 5. And I've titled those first five verses, The King's Desire, and you'll see why as we read through these. Verse 1, Lord, remember David and all of his afflictions, and how he swore to the Lord and he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And here was David's prayer. Surely I will not go to the chamber of my house, nor go to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until... I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The pilgrim's prayer begins Psalm 132, these first five, five verses, by recounting how it was that the desire to have a temple, a permanent place of worship in Jerusalem came about. You can read about it later this afternoon in Second Chronicles chapter 7, or excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 7 and 1 Chronicles chapter 17. In context, when you go back and read those historical accounts, you find that King David had finally been delivered from his nemesis, King Saul, who was killed in the battle with the Philistines. And then David, having defeated the followers of Saul, was now enthroned in Jerusalem, fully supported by both the tribe of Judah and the 11 other tribes of Israel who were now coming behind David. David was established there in Jerusalem. David was at peace. He was no longer running from Saul for his life. He was no longer worried about the Philistines. And he even recognized that he had been blessed by God because the king of Tyre had built him a beautiful palace in Jerusalem. And yet, David was burdened his heart as he looked at the furnishings in his palace and the beautiful timbers of cedar that came from the mountains of Lebanon and recognized that God was living in a tent. In other words, David had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and built a tent for it, a tabernacle, even as Moses did in the wilderness. And as David compared his palace to that tent, he was burdened in his heart. And so a desire came in his heart to build a house for God, a temple for God's presence. As such, it constituted David's greatest desire and ambition in life to build a temple, a place to honor the God who had been so faithful to him, the God who had been so merciful to him, the God who had rescued him at a very trial and tribulation and had set him on the throne in Israel. But there was a problem. It was David's desire, but it wasn't God's plan for David to build the temple. In other words, David had the desire, the passion to do it, but God sent Nathan the prophet to tell him it was not his to build, in First Chronicles seventeen four, Nathan comes to David. God tells Nathan, He says, "Go tell David, my servant. Thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for Me to dwell in." And in First Chronicles twenty eight three, David tells us why it is that God would not allow him to build a house. David says that God told him, "You shall not build a house for My name, because you have been a man of war." and they've shed much blood. In other words, David was called to be a king, he was called to be a liberator, he was called to be a warrior, but because his hands had been stained by blood and war, God did not want him to build a house that represented the peace of God. Rather, God tells David that it would be one of his sons that would be raised up by God himself to build a temple. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, David is told that when your days are fulfilled and when you rest with your fathers, David promises, I will set your seed after you, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. And in verse 13, God promises, and he shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Now, what's fascinating about God's promise to David, kind of two things, but right up front, is that God doesn't select David's oldest son, Amnon, according to tradition. In other words, according to Israel, Israelite tradition and Middle Eastern tradition, the oldest son would receive the inheritance. The oldest son would take the throne after his father died. That son would have been Amnon, but God overlooks Amnon, skips all the way down to Solomon and chooses Solomon to build the temple to honor the name of God. Now, that's fascinating for a couple of reasons, but perhaps most prominently that Solomon was born From Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, whom David had uh, killed or had killed in battle. Bathsheba representing David's greatest failure in life, yet God used her to bring forth the son that God would use to build the temple. In my mind, a beautiful picture of God's grace, that by his grace he chooses, he selects even those we might overlook to be the vessel through which he brings peace. Solomon's name means peaceful, and for most of, his, most of his rule, he was a man of peace, and God used him to build that temple in Jerusalem. Well, the first application that I find, just looking at these first five verses in Psalm 132 for your life and mine is this. You and I all have a passion desire to do something great for the Lord with our lives. In other words, like Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, in light of all that God has done for us, we should offer our very bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so each of us in our lives desire to do some great work for the Lord, to honor him, all that he's done for us, to deliver us from our sin, to set our feet on a solid rock, to wash us and cleanse us of all our sin, and to place our name in the Lamb's book of life, to grant us eternity, and we could go on and on and on with all the benefits that God has given us. And in light of that, in view of that, which of us would not want to do some great work for the Lord? And we all do. And so we decide to dedicate our lives to the Lord to be a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better husband. To be more Christ-like in our place of employment. Perhaps we've been called to, to begin a ministry or enter into a ministry, to be a pastor, to be an evangelist, to do some great work for the Lord. And the point is what we learn from David's life, while God is pleased with those desires, we're reminded by David that we need to keep our ears open to the voice of the Lord because we may have missed the mark. Oh, we had a great desire, but it may be in the wrong direction. I think of our dear pastor, Chuck Smith, <laughs> as he tells, uh, uh, with, or he used to tell with uh, kind of a chuckle and, and uh, kind of with a sanctified embarrassment about his desire after seminary. Though so he graduated in the early 1950s and during the, the post-World War II years, every seminary and every Bible college graduate wanted to do the same thing. Oh, they wanted to be an evangelist. (laughs) Travel around the country with a caravan like Billy Graham, like Charles Templeton, you know, like Billy Sunday, go and preach the gospel to crowds of people around the country and see thousands saved for Christ. Every Bible college graduate, every seminary wanted to be an evangelist. And dear Pastor Chuck and his brother Paul headed out to Missouri, (laughs) to the Midwest, to be an evangelist. They conducted evangelistic crusades with no impact for the kingdom of God. Oh, they would say the buses will wait, they call people forward, and everybody stayed in their seats. <laughs> oh, it was, a, it was a, a grand failure, according to Pastor Chuck. But what God was doing was redirecting his desire. Yes, he was called to serve the Lord, but not as an evangelist, but rather as a shepherd of God's people, to be a pastor of God's flock. The lesson then that we learn from David's experience is that it isn't the king's desire that is important in our service to the Lord. It's the king of kings' desire for our lives that's important. And here's my encouragement to you and me this morning. To not let unmet expectations in ministry, not let unmet unmet expectations in what we thought God wanted us to do, but it turned out it wasn't, don't let those things derail your faith or plant a root of bitterness in your heart toward God. Listen, I understand very well what it's like to think God was going to do one thing through your life and he had something else completely in mind. When I look back at our experience in Arkansas and the planning of Calvary Chapel of the Ozarks, when I went to Arkansas, I had a very different vision for what I thought God wanted to do in and through our lives. And after 17 years laboring day and night, To the point of exhaustion physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, my family and I recognize that God had a new season for us, a new direction for us in life. And it took me some time to reconcile that because like all pastors, when you go to plant a church, you go there to bury your bones. In other words, the point is you go there to fall in love with the people of the community, to build the work of God, and to stay there until the Lord calls you home. And so for him to, to, to change directions and to send us another place, it, it caused great consternation in my heart. It, it, it brought discouragement. It brought depression. I couldn't interpret. I couldn't understand. It didn't make sense that God was redirecting. And I'm thankful that we listened to the Lord and followed his path because God had another plan for us and for the fellowship that God used us to plant. And I understand, again, what it's like to be tempted to be bitter towards the Lord because your expectation in ministry was not met. Oh, no, we need to, to follow David's example where David recognized that he had a great desire to build a house for the Lord, but God was going to use someone else to do it. As Paul writes, some plant others water, but it's the Holy Spirit that brings increase. And we need to be content and find a blessing doing what God's called us to do rather than hanging on to false expectations of what we think God wanted us to do. Go back to our pilgrims. Today when the pilgrims sing this first section of the psalm, they recount in their hearts and their minds as they sing David's desire to build a house for God, a temple where he could be worshipped. But they're also today and have done every day since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, they pray for God to once again build a new temple where they can worship once more and keep the law of Moses. Verses 6 to 10, the people's prayer. Behold, they sing, we heard of it. And by the way, notice the it here in verse 6. We heard of it in Ethraphah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. And let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away your face, or the face of your anointed, excuse me. Here in verses 6 to 10, the psalmist now recounts the history of how it was that God came to dwell in the tabernacle or the temple there in Jerusalem. More specifically, the psalmist is recounting how it was that they rediscovered the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, which represents the heavenly reality of God's throne, which of course, if you don't have that, the temple's really of no use, because if you want God to dwell there, you've got to have his throne there, a place for him to be seated. And that's mentioned in verse 6. Again, note the context. Behold, we heard of it in Ethraphol. We found it in the fields of the woods. Now, if you're not reading out of the New King James, some English translations render the end of verse 6. We found it in the fields of J.R. And the reason they do that is J.R. simply means in the fields of woods or the city of woods. And it's a reference uh, to Kiriath-Jerim, which is where the ark had sat after his return by the Philistines. So both renderings are correct, but in view here is the fact that the, the pilgrims are remembering that the time came in David's ministry where they went to Kiriath-Jerim to retur- grab the ark and return it to the city of Jerusalem. And so the people's prayer here in verse 6 to 10 is if God would honor the desire of King David to bring to pass his promise to dwell with his people, represented by the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, representing that throne of God in heaven, placed first in the tent in Jerusalem, later in the temple that Solomon built, communicating that God was dwelling amongst his people. Well, consider the pilgrims' perspective as they sing that psalm. If, as Bible students suggest, this psalm was penned during the life of Hezekiah, many, or excuse me, the pilgrims' prayer as they sang this song before would be one of thanksgiving for what God had done to answer David's prayer to dwell with him in Jerusalem. In other words, before 70 AD, the pilgrims, as they sang this psalm at Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, as they made their way to Jerusalem, were looking back and thanking God for doing what David desired, to build a temple, a place for God to dwell in Jerusalem. But the prayer of the pilgrim today In other words, today as the the Jewish person would make their way to Jerusalem to sing this psalm, to sing the lyrics of this psalm, it's a prayer of supplication, looking forward that God would honor that desire of David and once more build a temple in Jerusalem where the Jewish people can worship to replace the temple that was destroyed by the Roman legions almost 2,000 years ago. And my point is this, to the Jewish person today, to sing verse 7, let's go into his tabernacle. It's, It's of no value. It's not a reality because there's nothing in Jerusalem for them to see. And so today when the Jewish people sing this psalm, it's with a prayerful attitude and a hope in their heart that one day, and maybe one day soon, they will be able to go to the temple and worship him as they once did. Now, the application for our lives, we we want to look at this, right? We don't need a temple. we, We recognize that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of the law and that there is no longer a need to go to Jerusalem, no longer a need to go to a temple, no longer a need for priesthood, no longer for sacrifice and offering because Jesus has fulfilled all of that. So what's the application to our lives? And I want to suggest that it is this. And I think one of the benefits, really, of the whole pandemic and the months that we were shut down where people around the country were not allowed to meet together as a fellowship of believers, I think one of the benefits has been to remind us just how important a place to assemble as a congregation is. Now listen, I understand and as a pastor especially that that when we talk about the church, we're not talking about this building. We're not talking about any building. We're talking about you and me and the universal body of Christ, all believers since the day of Pentecost until the day of the Lord's return, all of us together, right? That's the body of Christ. That's the church. But the reality is that it's great to have a place to meet. And I think part of the, the, again, the benefit of not being able to come here every week to fellowship with one another, to worship together, to hear the word of God taught to us personally and not through my television screen or on a computer. The benefit is the fellowship of the saints and all that God does when we gather together like we do. Understand that the Jewish people have not had such a place to worship for almost 2,000 years. And let's remember that Christians all over the world, our brothers and sisters, around the world have no place to meet. I think of Pakistan. I think of China where churches are routinely burned and bulldozed, Christians scattered. My point is this. While we don't want to overemphasize the building we've been blessed with, nor do we want to neglect it. In other words, be thankful that God has given us a place that we can meet together, to fellowship together, to, to learn together, to worship together together Heated in the winter, cooled in the summer. What a wonderful thing. And so it's a reminder as we look at the Jewish pilgrims longing for, praying for, hoping for the day when they can once again assemble to worship God at their temple. We have such a place. And so we don't want to take that for granted. All right, the Lord's promise, verses 11 to 18. In the closing verses, the psalmist reminds the pilgrim of the Lord's promises to King David. You see, while the temple yet stood, the pilgrims were saying this, and it would have brought encouragement to trust in God for future promises, recognizing that God had already made a fulfillment to the promise he gave to David to have one of his sons build a temple. However, when there is no temple standing as it is today, these verses would give hope to the people of Israel as they look forward to the time when God would once again bring about fulfillment of the promises that he made to David to give them a temple. There's three promises that I note here in these last verses. Verse 11 and 12, we see the promise of God that David's line would continue. Look at verse 11. It says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. The promise, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your own body. In other words, one of David's descendants would rule and reign in Israel. Verse 12, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons shall sit upon your throne forever. Now God promised David that his descendants alone, no one else except a descendant of David would be a rightful heir to the throne of Israel as long as David's descendants followed his example and worshiped and served the Lord. However, the warning is, if they disobeyed the Lord, then God would remove them from his throne. And of course, ultimately, we see that in the kings of Israel, the, the kings of uh, Judah, uh, just continued to go downward in their, in, their, uh, in their religious expression, beginning to worship false gods and idols and walk in disobedience to God. And ultimately, God did bring judgment first on the northern kingdom of Israel and then on the southern kingdom of Judah. And he brought judgment upon the king and the people and removed David's descendants from the throne of Israel. And yet God's promise still stands because even though David's human descendants were not faithful, nonetheless, God keeps his promises and the covenant that he made with David is an unconditional one, and you can read about it this afternoon in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. It wasn't a covenant where God told David, you do this and I'll do this. God just says, I'm going to do this. And David could just worship the Lord and be thankful for what God promised to do. The fulfillment of God's promise to David is ultimately, through one of his human descendants, that person being Jesus Christ, who was born of the house of David, as testified in the lineages recorded by Matthew and Luke in their Gospels, clearly tracing Jesus' lineage, his human lineage, back to King David. And it's fascinating to read Jesus' ministry in the Gospels in those three and a half years that he was ministering publicly, how he provided indisputable evidence that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. Promised not just to King David to have one of his descendants sit on the throne, but all the prophets from Genesis to Malachi pointing to the Messiah. If you were an honest person, if you had no prejudice against Jesus, there would be no way you could conclude anything other than that this is a descendant of David and he is the rightful heir of the throne of, of David. In fact, we read about that on Palm Sunday in the Gospel Accounts where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem to the singing of the common people as they shout to him, Hosanna, the son of David. In other words, they recognized in Jesus, this is a true descendant of David who is worthy to take his throne. And Jesus presents himself to the nation of Israel. He's evaluated by the religious leaders during the week prior to Passover. They find no fault in him. They see in him all the evidence that would indicate that he was, in fact, the fulfillment of God's promise to King David to be that final, eternal king over Israel. But the nation rejected him, and the high priest called for his crucifixion. And so we think that the the promise of God had become unfulfilled. (laughs) No, God is faithful despite the unfaithfulness of man. The apostle Paul eloquently writes in Romans chapters nine, 10, and 11 that the rejection of Israel of their king brought salvation to the Gentiles. In other words, in their rejection, God then took his kingdom to the whole world. And now everyone of every tribe, tongue, nation, people, Jew and Gentile alike who would trust in Jesus Christ can become a citizen of the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom today, but one day a physical kingdom on earth. And finally, of course, God's promise to King David for a king, one of his seed, one of his descendants, to rule and reign in Jerusalem will be fulfilled when Jesus returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom in Israel and sits himself on the throne of David from which he will rule the entire earth. Verses 13 to 16, the Lord's promise that Zion would be his home, the place where the temple would be built. Verse 13, for the Lord, notice, has chosen Zion. Zion is often re- used in Scripture, referred to Jerusalem, uh, sometimes more specifically just to the mountain where David built his, his palace. But in this case, speaking of all of Jerusalem, God has chosen that place for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And again, this is, this is the Lord speaking. This isn't David's hope. This isn't, this isn't Pastor Paul's interpretation. Verse 14, the Lord says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. He says, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints will shout aloud for joy. Here's the point. The psalmist reminds us that it is God who chose Zion. God chose Jerusalem as the spot where his house, his temple would be located. No other place on planet earth will do. And because God chose it, no one has authority to move the temple. Oh, they built a replica in Brazil, but that's not where God's going. (laughs) They've probably got a a, a replica, you know, in different places around the world. Maybe in Branson, Missouri, it's a great place to go for Christmas, but I don't know that they really have one. But it doesn't matter. That's not the place God chose. No other place will work. And by the way, it's a really bad idea to build something else where God said he's going to build his temple. Because the temple and the real estate that it once uh, occupied is God's forever, verse 14. And so the Jewish people today, as they sing this song, they recognize that for 3,000 years from the day that God chose Mount Moriah in Jerusalem as the place where his temple would be built, that this is the place that God is to be worshiped and no other place on planet Earth. And by the way, that's what the friction we read about today is between the Jewish people and the Arab people in the Middle East. Because this place that is described here in these verses before us is presently occupied by the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy place in Islam. And so the Jewish people, now in control of all of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, but desiring to see a temple built, are in a difficult dilemma, because currently on the Temple Mount stands a place of worship for the Muslim people on planet Earth. Now, by the way, never mind (laughs) that the city of Jerusalem and Zion is never mentioned in the Quran, not once. Over 700 times in the Bible, but never once in the Quran. Instead, it's based on a loose oral tradition, late 7th, 8th century kind of thing, an interpretation of the Quran by which the Muslims say, well, here's what happened. Muhammad took a night ride on a stallion from that rock that the Dome of the Rock covers into heaven. Well, it's not in the Quran. It's just kind of a loose interpretation of one verse in it. But based on that theory, they believe that's a holy place for Islam. And so today you'll find Islamic scholars arguing and trying to prove archaeologically there was never a Jewish temple here. Now the Jewish archaeologists arguing, yes, there was, and here 's the evidence for it. And the point is that today Arabs and Jewish people are very emotional when you talk about the Temple Mount and who it belongs to. Interesting as you look at the history of the Temple Mount, it fell under Jewish or excuse me Muslim control in the 11th century a d and remained under Muslim control up until 1967. And in 1967, the Jewish paratroopers moving toward Jerusalem captured both, both or the, they had the west side of Jerusalem, captured the east side of Jerusalem, which held the Temple Mount. And the world waited in anticipation, believing that at that moment, during the, during the flush of war, that Israel would destroy the Dome of the Rock and build the Temple in its place. But Moshe Dayan, the defense minister for Israel, saw the uh, error in doing that. He recognized if we did that, <laughs> we would incur the wrath of a billion Muslims from 50 different nations all over the world, and that's a war Israel doesn't want. And so I- Israel, the leadership of Moshe Dayan, decided to give the Temple Mount back to the Jordanians. They have since given it to the Palestinian Authority, who now control it. But my personal opinion, which will get you coffee if you've got $5 in addition to my opinion at Starbucks, I would not be surprised that in the future, that the future Antichrist is going to, in that seven-year peace treaty, that he enters into with Israel, Daniel nine twenty-seven, that part of the incentive to bring Israel to the treaty table with their, her Arab neighbors is to allow them to rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount. We'll look at that in detail this evening. Back to our psalm, the pilgrims needed to know then, and they need to know now that God has promised that Zion is the place where his house, his temple, will be built. And no matter who has the real estate, God is going to take it back. And then finally, look at God's promise in verses 17 and 18, the promise that Messiah will come. He says, there I will make the horn of David grow, and I will pre- prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. I love this because the psalmist leaves the best for last, right? Always the best for last. You have a great dinner, but then there's dessert. Always chocolate. Sorry, right? If it isn't chocolate, it's not dessert. Anyway, but the psalmist leaves the best for last, spiritually speaking, and that is that here he promises that one day the Messiah called my anointed, which is literally the translation of Messiah, there in verse 17, would come and rule and reign in Jerusalem from the throne of David. Now in our English translations, it's not as clear as it is to the Hebrew today whether the Messianic Hebrew, our brothers and sisters who have received Jesus as their savior or to the Jewish person who doesn't yet know Messiah. But they recognize in these two verses that clearly the psalmist is describing the Messiah. For example, notice in verse 17 he talks about the horn of David. He's not talking about a musical instrument like a trumpet. (laughs) No, he's talking about a horn like on an animal, like on a ram or, 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 uh, or a bull or something like that. And all through the Bible, horns are used symbolically to represent strength and power. We see it in Daniel's vision of the four kingdoms that are warring. We see it in John's, uh, John's description of the beast, the future, the future beast and the kingdom that he will reign. But what's fascinating to me is that in Zechariah's prayer and prophecy... After his mouth is loosed, remember John the Baptist is born, his father Zachariah's mouth is loosed, the first thing that pours forth prophetically from his lips is this, Luke chapter 1, verse 68, he cries out, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and listen, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, an echo really of verse 17 that we just read. A horn of his servant David. As he spoke, Zechariah says, by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. And so the horn of David speaks of the future descendant of David, the Messiah who would rule and reign. Then in verse 17, he's called a lamp. And a lamp is symbolic of that anointed leader who shines forth God's glory and leads God's people into righteousness. By way of example, David was symbolically called a lamp when he went out to battle with the Philistines in his advanced age and was overcome because he was older and almost killed by one of the Philistines. And in 2 Samuel 21, verse 17, we're told that Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to David's aid, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, now listen to what they tell him, you shall go out no more to battle with us, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, the lamp of Israel, the king to, to, to lead the people into righteousness, the king to shine forth God's glory. But it wasn't just David. David's descendants, in other words, the kings that followed in his lineage, were also called a lamp. In 1 Kings eleven thirty six, 36, God promises, and to his son, I will give one tribe, my servant David, that he will always have a lamp before me in Israel, speaking of David's descendants. And it culminates in the promise that David's descendant, the descendant, the Messiah, would also be a lamp. As Zachariah just prophesied, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The promise, then, that the psalmist reminds the pilgrim of then and now, is that the coming of the or is that the coming Messiah will be of the line of David. No other person will do. No other lineage will do. He will be a mighty king and an anointed leader who will light the way. For God's people, both Jew and Gentile alike, and his reign will never end. And the pilgrims today who sing these verses sing it with great joy as they anticipate the coming of Messiah. Now, we recognize as Christians that Messiah has already come. He came once to suffer and die for the sins of the world that he might grant us citizenship in the kingdom of God. But he's promised to come a second time to establish his kingdom on the earth over which he will rule and reign, and those who have walked with him faithfully will rule and reign with him. However, as we recognize, most Jews today's, today reject the Lord's claim, and they're still looking for a Messiah who they believe will build the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we'll cover that in some detail this evening, but let me just say this. Jesus said to the Jewish people who reject him, I have come in my father's name, and you do not receive me. But another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Speaking of that future Antichrist, that the Jewish people who have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior will mistakenly believe is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and they will trust in the Antichrist as their Messiah until the midpoint of the tribulation when he sits himself in the temple, the rebuilt temple, and claims to be God, demands the worship of the world, and they recognize, oy we made a mistake. But as Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14, and Paul tells us in Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, God's not done with Israel. During the tribulation period that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble, he's going to turn the hearts of the Jewish people back to the Lord, And by the end of the tribulation, those Jews who have survived will look to the Messiah. They will believe on Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And Paul says, so all Israel will be saved. Well, for the Christian today, by way of application for us this morning, this psalm reminds us that like David, we ought to have a desire to honor the Lord. And all that he's done for us by dedicating this temple, our bodies, That Paul tells us is where the Spirit of God now dwells, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. Using this body to honor the Lord and to bring glory to his name in our relationships at home, in our relationships at work, in our social media posts. (laughs) In other words, let's use this body for God's glory, not for the pursuit of sin. Let's dedicate this temple to his service, not our own lusts and desires. This psalm also reminds us to be thankful for the work of Christ upon the cross, which means that we no longer need to go to Jerusalem. We no longer need to go to a temple. We no longer need a priesthood. We no longer need all of the law and the sacrifices and all that went with the law of Moses. That's all been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And now, by the blood of Christ, we can enter the real holy of holies in prayer. Come before the throne of grace and call God Abba, Daddy, And this psalm reminds us that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to establish a kingdom that shall never end, a kingdom that you and I and all people have been invited to be a part of by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And I know I'm preaching of the choir, but if anyone within the sound of my voice has not yet asked Jesus to be their Savior, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to recognize that you don't have to go through religious rituals, you don't have to go through a priesthood, you don't have to go through any of that to be made right with God, to have your sins forgiven, to have your guilt lifted, the shame removed, and to have eternal life. It's simply by trusting in Jesus Christ the promised Messiah that this psalm sings about, and so I'd encourage you when we close in prayer, Christian. Maybe it's the time to rededicate this temple to the Lord's service. Maybe it's time to to surrender those 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 areas of bitterness without, where you had unmet expectations in ministry. Maybe it's the time to recognize that we really haven't served the Lord the way we ought to, and today is the day to rededicate ourselves. And for those who don't know the Lord, today is the day to give your heart to Jesus. Pray with me, would you? Father, this morning we thank you for the psalm that is before us. And Lord, we think back to the day when the Jewish pilgrims at the time of David and, and, and the good and godly kings of Judah must have sung with such enthusiasm so much passion and excitement, looking forward to the time that they would enter your temple, courtyards, and be able to worship you there as a congregation of people to dedicate themselves fresh and anew to you and to recognize that in you, Lord, they find all their fulfillment. But Lord, this morning as Christians, we recognize that we have such a greater portion That, Lord, we don't have to to look to a temple or to animal sacrifice to cover sin. Our sins have been washed and cleansed and removed for all eternity by the perfect Lamb of God. And so we're thankful for that. Father, I pray today for my brothers and sisters. If anyone here is, is carrying a root of bitterness, Or maybe just discouraged or depressed because of some unmet expectation where they were sure that you were going to do so, you know, such and such in their life or through their ministry, and it didn't quite work out the way they had anticipated. Father, I pray for that brother, that sister today, and ask that you'd help them to surrender that to you and to open their ears, their heart, and their mind to your fresh direction, understanding that you have a perfect plan. And like David, it's not, may not be building a temple. Maybe it's just preparing for our son to do so. Lord, we pray also for anyone this morning that has come, that the invitation of a friend or maybe just out of desperation, who this morning doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would now convict their heart, that you would show them that there is simply no other way to be made right with you except through a personal relationship with Christ And I pray that right this moment, they would ask you to be their Lord and Savior, to wash them and cleanse them of their sin, to come into their heart where you will set up your throne, where you will dwell forever. And so, Lord, whatever needs to be done in our lives this morning, we ask that you would do it. And we know that you will, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.